You're listening to episode one of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. On this episode, Dr. Haken looks at history and resurrection. He examines the historical evidence of the defining event of Christianity, the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's listen now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. When it came to death, the ancient world was just as worldly-wise as our modern world. The majority of people in the ancient world believed in some form of life after death, but once death had occurred, that person's unique bodily existence was forever gone. It was thus a given for the ancients that the idea of the resurrection of the body was something patently false. Aeschylus, the Greek playwright, expressed it this way in his Eumenides. When once a man has died, and the dust has drunk his blood, There is no resurrection. Surely it was a similar conviction that informed the mockery of some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers when they heard Paul mention the resurrection in his Mars Hill sermon, and that similarly underlay the statement of some of the Corinthians that there is no resurrection of the dead. In complete contrast, and in glorious isolation in antiquity when it comes to the subject of resurrection, there is Judaism and Christianity, both of which affirm that dead bodies can and would indeed live again. The author of Hebrews, for example, reckons that the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is part of the basics of the Christian faith, and he commends to his hearers the faith of the Old Testament patriarch Abraham, who, when asked by God to sacrifice Isaac, was prepared to obey, for he reckoned that God was able to indeed raise him from the dead. Central to Christianity's conviction that God can indeed raise dead bodies to life, of course, is the historical fact that God brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, as Hebrews puts it, in its sole reference to the resurrection of Jesus in the entire book in Hebrews 13, verse 20. In fact, this historical event of the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17. If Christ has not been raised, then Christian preaching is in vain, and the Christian faith is futile. Now, given the intellectual climate of the world in which the good news of Christianity was first proclaimed, a world that knew dead bodies do not come back to life, it was vital for the church to produce clear historical evidence that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead in space and in time. To assert, as some 20th century scholars have done, men like Rudolf Bultmann and Paul Tillich, that the resurrection of Jesus was not an actual physical event, but was a metaphor for the fact that he was now living in the hearts and minds of his disciples, was not good news for the ancient world, nor was it startling to the ancients. In this sense, Plato and Aristotle, to name but two of the most influential thinkers of that world, were still living in the minds and hearts of those who followed their teachings. No, what was different about the Christian message, and what caused so much opposition to it, was the fundamental claim that Jesus had been crucified to death, had been buried, but also that he'd been raised from the dead physically. In what is probably the oldest account of the resurrection of Jesus, found in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes this, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Paul probably wrote 1 Corinthians in the early summer of 54 AD. But these words, actually a mini-creed, are up to 20 years older than this letter to the Corinthian church. 
Paul had received this teaching, he says, from earlier Christian witnesses, possibly in Damascus, just after his conversion in 34 AD, or at most three years later when he went up to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James. This would place this text within a few years, at most seven, from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Having a text this close to the actual events is vital to determine the facticity of the resurrection of Jesus. This critical statement begins with the fact of Jesus' death, an historical event that is beyond any reasonable historical doubt. The 19th century rationalistic explanation of the resurrection, popularly known as the swoon theory, namely that Jesus was not really dead when they took him down from the cross, only comatose, and that he came to in the tomb and later appeared to his disciples, is utterly implausible. Everything in the biblical account points to a real death. And as Craig Evans rightly notes, wise disciples would have viewed a seriously injured, limping Jesus as risen from the dead in a glorified body, stretches one's credulity to the breaking point. No, as this early Christian creed affirms, Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. The next distinct declaration, he was buried, is easily glossed over, but is very significant historically to the affirmation of the resurrection. There is abundant evidence in scripture to show that proper burial of the dead was an extremely important part of the Jewish religion. The rabbis considered the burial of the dead to be nothing less than a sacred duty. So important was it that it was deemed more important than the study of the Torah, the circumcision of one son, or even the offering of the Passover lamb. Again, as Craig Evans sums up, the commands of Scripture taken with traditions regarding piety, corpse impurity, and the avoidance of defilement of the land strongly suggest that under normal circumstances no corpse would remain unburied, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither innocent nor guilty, all were to be buried. Jesus was thus buried in accordance with the strong Jewish custom. In Jewish tradition, Burial was on the day of death and was followed by seven days of mourning, a tradition derived from passages like Genesis 50 and 1 Samuel 31. Mourning took place at the tomb, or even within the tomb, hence the necessity of perfuming the body of the deceased, since by the sixth or seventh day, putrefaction would have set in. Then it was customary in Jesus' day for the family and friends to come to the tomb a year later to place the deceased's bones in a container called an ossuary. This practice is called ossilegium. Understandably, it was vital to know which tomb the body was placed in so one could return to mourn and then perform the ossilegium and exactly a year later. We are told in the Gospel accounts that Jesus was buried in a tomb belonging to a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, and that some of the women who administered to him and his disciples noted exactly where the tomb was. The following day was the Sabbath, so they rested that day and planned on returning the tomb on the day after the Sabbath to perfume the corpse. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, had already begun this perfuming of Jesus' body on the day of his death, but because of the lateness of the hour, they'd not been able to finish what needed to be done. It's important to realize that due to the Jewish customs outlined above, as well as what we are explicitly told in the Gospel accounts, the women would have known exactly the locale of the tomb in which Jesus had been buried. This fact refutes the argument made by some that the women visited the wrong tomb. Moreover, if it had been the wrong tomb to which the women went, it would have been a simple matter for Jewish authorities to have gone to the right tomb and produced the body when Peter and the other apostles began to preach that Jesus had been raised from the dead. 
When the women returned to the very tomb in which they had seen Jesus' body laid, they found it empty, as the Gospels all record. Paul makes no explicit mention of the empty tomb, but he implies it when he says that Jesus was buried and that he was raised on the third day. If he was buried and then raised, the tomb would have been empty. To a Jewish mind, resurrection meant but one thing, and that was bodily resurrection. Nor does he mention the witness of the women. The first witness he mentions is Peter, whom he calls Cephas, then the twelve, a term used to designate the apostles as a special group. The reason for not mentioning the witness of the women is again simple. Women were not permitted to serve as legal witnesses in Jewish society, apart from a few minor areas. In a formal statement of the resurrection, therefore, it is not surprising that they are not mentioned. On the other hand, the very fact that the gospel records mention the women discovering the empty tomb helps to authenticate those records. No Jewish man of that era would have made up such an account. But if the tomb was empty, where was the body? Jesus had been well and truly dead when he was placed in the tomb. It could not have been the wrong tomb to which the women went, as we have seen. The Jewish authorities did not come up with an explanation, as Matthew tells us in his account in Matthew 28, where he tells us that they uh, argued that his disciples had stolen the body. The silliness of the story is readily apparent to anyone who examines as objectively as he can the early Christian movement. Why would any of the apostles have been willing to suffer and die, which happened to all of them, for what they manifestly knew to be a lie? This explanation by the Jewish leaders is also a witness to the empty tomb. If these Jewish leaders could have produced the body, why didn't they? The fact is they couldn't because the tomb was empty. When the apostles in the weeks and months to come preached that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they did it in Jerusalem, the very place where it would have been easy for the authorities to squash the fledgling church by simply producing the body of Jesus. They didn't because they couldn't. The invention of the story of the disciples stealing Jesus' body is in fact a tacit admission that they too believed the tomb was empty. And why was the tomb empty? Only one explanation remains plausible. Jesus' body had been raised from the dead. Supporting the early Christian assertion in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus had been raised from the dead is a list of witnesses who saw him. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. If we go through the Gospels, we find the various details of these appearances. Some have argued that what we have here is simply a hallucination. The apostles and the disciples thought they saw Jesus, but it was all in their minds. But how can one explain the appearance of Jesus to more than 500 on one occasion? Hallucinations simply do not happen en masse. In fact, the mention of the fact that most of these brethren are still alive needs to be seen as an indication that these witnesses could be found and questioned about what they saw. Nor do the appearances of Jesus that are recorded for us in the Gospels look like hallucinations. The appearances of Jesus are too solid, too physical to be regarded as visions. Among the witnesses listed by Paul, two are especially noteworthy. First, there is James, Jesus' half-brother. During Jesus' lifetime, James had refused to believe in Jesus and actually thought him mad. In Acts 1.14, though, we find that Jesus' brothers, including presumably James, were among the 120 meeting for prayer in Jerusalem before the downpour of the Spirit at Pentecost. And when Paul visited Jerusalem three years after his conversion, James, the Lord's brother, was now numbered among the apostles and one of the Jerusalem church leaders. 
Surely the best explanation of this 180 degree turnabout in James's life is to be found in these words of 1 Corinthians 15:7. The risen Jesus appeared to James. The second noteworthy witness is Paul himself. Paul had not known Jesus during the latter's earthly ministry, but soon after Jesus' resurrection and the beginning of the Christian movement, Paul ranked himself among its fiercest opponents. As time went on, there is every indication that he considered his violent opposition to Christianity to be a mark of piety. And along with his persecution of the church, he also believed that he was keeping the law. But then suddenly and unexpectedly, Paul's life was turned upside down. What could make a man go from being a violent persecutor of the Christian faith to being one of its firmest and most ardent advocates? Well, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared also to him, that he had seen Jesus in the same way the others had seen the risen Lord, namely with their physical eyes. One final piece of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the church's practice of gathering for worship, not on the traditional Jewish day of worship, the Sabbath or Saturday, but on the day after, the day we will call Sunday, what is in the New Testament sometimes called the Lord's Day. The change of days for worship is very early, very early indeed in the history of the church. It was a universal custom, for there is no hint of a controversy about the day in the early Christian records. What can account for such a change? Simply this fact, that the Lord rose on the first day of the week, and that it was now only appropriate to worship him on that day in commemoration of what is truly the defining event of the Christian faith, namely the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in space and in time. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.